what I know based off of talking to these people as well as going to web archive and seeing the evolution of all these companies is that early products start out to be mostly bad early on or rough around the edges at least. And so I'm really good at saying like, here's the stake of the ground. Here's where I think we're going to be in five or 10 years. And here's how the step, here's the steps that we can go and do it. That said, I really only care about step one, about digging that first hole. And I'm really confident that that I'll figure out steps two and three along the way or as I dig deeper. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into the Fort. I am pumped to have a good friend and founder of The Hustle, Sam Parr, with me today. This episode is awesome. We cover a ton from Sam dropping out of college to start a hot dog stand and an online liquor store to then moving out to Silicon Valley and creating one of the fastest growing newsletters in the country. We talk about how to build an online media business today, a few other companies he's starting, how he looks at life and more. Thank you for joining me for a conversation, Sam. Hey, no problem. Happy to be here. I'll just jump right into it. How did you um, get to the Bay Area and and what's the the kind of lead in to how the hustle came to be? Yeah, so I'm kind of, um, I'm pretty embedded into the Silicon Valley culture now in San Francisco culture. Uh, I don't exactly love everything about it, but I'm definitely embedded in it now. Um, But I am from Missouri. So like I did not at all come from this type of environment. So grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, ended up going to college on an athletic scholarship in Nashville, Tennessee. When I was in Tennessee, I met this guy named Mike Wolf. Have you seen this TV show called American Pickers? Yeah. 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 So I was just walking on the street and I always collected motorcycles and I met this guy named Mike Wolf and I knew who he was and I uh, he was the main guy at American Pickers and I became friends with him just on the street. And he was like, Hey, I'm opening up this store in Nashville. You want to work there and help me set it up and run it? And I said, yeah, I was 20 years old. I was like, yeah, that's awesome. So I did that. And throughout my life, I'd always started my own businesses and I never had a job before, but I didn't realize that like, that was something that you could do on a really big scale. Like entrepreneurship wasn't like a thing to me necessarily. And, but he's an entrepreneur. Mike Wolf is. And I was like, this is awesome. I could do this. And so in, after working with him and him mentoring me and teaching me things, I ended up starting a chain of hot dog stands while I was in college in Nashville. And that worked really well. And I was making great money, but it was really hard to be outside in like a hundred degree heat all day and making, uh, you know, I was making money, but it was just like hard. So I ended up launching um, an online liquor store called Moonshot Online. And that started making like a grand a day, like really fast. And I was like, oh, the internet's way more interesting than like being outside in 100 degree heat. So I Googled like, I Googled like where in America do internet companies start? And I had never been to California. I'd never been west of, I'd never been west of Missouri really at this point. Um, And someone online said Silicon Valley. So I looked up, I was like, what's Silicon Valley? I didn't know the difference between LA and San Francisco, but I was like, screw it. It seems like all the cool stuff's in San Francisco. Let's go out there. So I moved out, I left school and moved out here, uh, ended up starting a few businesses while I moved out here. I, I didn't know anyone, but I just met people through meetups or other random things and started a business called Bunk, which I was a co-founder. Someone had already started it before me, but I kind of joined them and grew it and then we sold it. And then through that, I started a few other companies and eventually uh, led me to this business. How did you go from a, a American picker to a hot dog stand to I'm going to start an online liquor store? <laughs> well, the people who I say this with love because I'm part of the culture, but the people who came to American Picker store 
were all like rednecks and they came from all over the country but it was like mostly like these like southern rednecks and i was i'm a i was kind of rough around the edges as well and i was like man these these guys like are waiting in this long line to like get something to eat but or sorry to come see our thing but like they'll wait in line for like an hour and and there was only one restaurant in the area and they were selling like fancy stuff and i was like these people just want like coke and diet coke and like chips and stuff like that they don't want fancy gourmet candy which was like the only store in the area so i was like i don't have a lot of money but i could start a hot dog stand because that's not a very expensive and so that's kind of how i did it and then you know i hung out with a lot of southern bubba's and in doing that i learned what moonshine was and there was a law that i read about in nashville that said that small time distillers could start selling whiskey it's almost like how craft beer came about except this they said small town small time distillers could sell whiskey and technically that's not moonshine because it's legal but i was like you know what like i know through working at american pickers that americana stuff is really popular um I should brand this as like moonshine and call it a moonshine store, but I'll, it's just really legal whiskey and I'll just sell it online. That's awesome. So you do that, you get out to, you get out to San Francisco, you say in your LinkedIn profile that's that starting bunk and selling bunk uh, changed your life. Why did it change your life? Well, I made some money off of it, but not like crazy money, but I made a little bit of money, but I pretty much, I met a guy named John Havel who he was a big inspiration. He was, he started the business and I joined him and, and then like co-founded it with him, I guess. But I met him and he was a little bit older than me. And I learned that when we sold it, the guys who start who bought it were just small time entrepreneurs that eventually grew a company to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And they were kind of like me. And I was just, I was just able to see that loads of people who were just a few years older than me and not necessarily smarter than I was, um, and some of them came from poor backgrounds, some came from rich backgrounds, but just people who I thought were normal people like me were able to build all these amazing things. And I was able to uh, surround myself with those types of folks. And it just changed my life because it realized that I can do anything I want. I can build anything I want. The things around me that I consider to be these huge things, like even if it's just like a huge building or something, it's like, man, the person who put this together is probably not smarter than I am, probably as smart or a little bit less or a little bit more. They probably didn't come from like a wealthy background. Like I could do that too. And it just kind of inspired me. That's that's awesome. Yeah. I think part of the business journey, you kind of keep realizing day after day that the, the pedestal that you sometimes, that we sometimes put people on, they're not as far away from us as we really think. Yeah. So, so with, with, with HustleCon, you know, we've had hundreds of people speak at HustleCon and I get to hang out with all of them backstage. Like last year, it was me um, and the founder of WeWork and Casey Neistat just hanging out for an hour and a half. And you have Casey Neistat, who's kind of like a celebrity. And then you have the founder of WeWork, who is like a 30-something-year-old guy worth 2 or $3 billion. And we all had similarities. And it's like, these guys just do a combination of grinding really hard and getting lucky and being really talented and skilled at their job. Like, they are crushing it, but I could do that. Like they're, they're not necessarily better than me. I mean, they're maybe more skilled at some certain things, but they're like, we're in the same ballpark. Yep. You've had hundreds of founders come through HustleCon, which is a, that's how I met you. And it's an incredible conference. What's a, is, is what's the common theme amongst most of them? Is it their focus and their desire to succeed? Or is there something else that you've kind of picked up on over the years? Yeah, I think that what I've noticed is that the people at HustleCon who have made it work the best are often quite logical and don't have limiting beliefs. And I've actually noticed this around people that have really, really high IQs is they um, they think of all the reasons why something wouldn't work or why something won't work. And they say, well, this won't work for this reason or that reason. But it, it, that seems like it, that like people who are really, really, really smart attract or, or things like that. But the people at, at HustleCon who many of them are really smart, but they all have this similar belief of like, like for example, um, Jen Rubio, the woman who started Away, the suitcase company that's now worth $1.4 billion. She, she was like, well, I, I was like, what inspired you to start, the, start this? She was like, well, I, I, I knew people bought lots of luggage and I knew that I didn't think a lot of modern luggage was cool. Therefore, I knew with a 
high degree of certainty that at least some amount of people would be willing to buy a cool luggage company. So I just decided to start it. And like, that's a really logical way. Like you hear that and you're like, yep, totally makes sense. Yep. Uh, that, that's great. Whereas if you, t if you told like a pessimistic person or someone who doesn't have this like limiting beliefs or someone who does have a limiting belief system, they would often say like, well, people might buy luggage, but they'll never buy my luggage because it's not nearly as good as the other guys or You'll, they'll never buy my my luggage because I don't have the money to start the company. Like, you do, do you know what I mean? Yep. And the, yeah. And the people at HustleCon who I've enjoyed most, they just don't have lim limiting beliefs. They just say like, yeah, it was really hard, but then I had it, but I had to go in, to the bank and try to figure out how to convince them to give me a loan. But I knew I was able to do that because if I talked to a hundred people, at least one of them would say yes. It's like, it's like a very logical way of like going about things. It's almost so easy and logical that people go something must be missing for this to be that easy to kind of think through well what i often say is that starting a business or at least like getting wealthy it very often isn't a matter of iq it's more or intelligence it's more often uh, an emotional game and so it's like who can win that yep um that's because because there's like loads of smart people who have never done anything and there's loads of really like unintelligent people that just crush it financially so it's like okay iq maybe isn't like the the only determining factor and i always think it's far more about the emotion for sure no i think it's kind of the quote that you hear a lot is a students work for c students oh yeah yeah people can be I kind of that people get in their their own way yeah my uh, my experience at HustleCon was my one kind of thing. I'll I'll never forget about it. it. Was the year you had Heidi Zach, who founded Third Love Speak, when they were much smaller. And I yeah, just went. Yeah, she's cool. I just talked to her today. At break, she was just sitting in that little coffee room in that theater. Um, I don't know if that's where you still host it, but the the year in 2015, there was that little coffee shop, and she was just sitting there by herself. I think she had just spoke. I went up and sat there and ended up chatting with her. Ended up investing in her company and it's been kind of a, a game-changing event it's three or four years down the road i've learned a ton just being an investor and no um, way that's awesome i didn't know that yep no literally and, just walked up to her and james bashera who you know who was my really good friend who spoke that year it was just coincidence that she when they started third love their office was above tilt's office so there was just a bunch of connections but that's what i'll always remember about that conference is these people were just normal people and i just walked up and sat at her table she didn't invite me we chatted for 30 minutes and stayed in touch for the next couple of weeks and the rest was history so i i have no insider information all i did was google third love and it says their valuation is 750 million dollars and <laughs> i have no idea if that's right or wrong but if you were able to invest in 2015 it sounds like that was a good move for you it was a it was a good move. They uh, yeah they just raised a Series C, I think a fifty five million dollars Series C. When we invested, they were fifteen employees. I think they're at like five or six hundred now. So it's been oh, a, are they that big? Oh, they're huge now. They've got a huge office down in South America. It's really really impressive what they're That's doing. That's awesome. She like I think she like laid off like they built the company and they're like wait we kind of screwed some stuff up and they like laid off a ton of people and like restarted and it like has been good yep and her co-founders her husband so they're kind of all in it and they are some motivated individuals um that's great man that's such a cool story congratulations to her and you for getting in on that well thank you for providing the environment i, I literally i tell people that story all the time um getting into some of these deals isn't this crazy complicated thing some of it's just showing up and you know, getting outside of your comfort zone and talking to people. Well, if when they have a liquidity event, you can buy me a steak as like a scout fee for you. That is a deal. Steak <laughs> and moonshine. Yeah. The coolest thing um, that I, I continue to get to be a part of every day in your world is the hustle, which is your newsletter um, that is the it's the best written, no bullshit, no political correctness. Um, here's how it is. Your first uh, newsletter came out on July 6th of 2015, and the title was, We Just Raised Funding, Now Watch Us Blow It All. So my question <laughs> is, how did you blow that first couple hundred grand? 
Yeah, so um, that we launched the company. When people ask how old we are now, I actually say we're three years old because the product that we're known for now launched in like basically May 1st of 2016. But I had been working on this company since 2014 as a conference. And then in 2015, in July, the date you just said, that was when I started the blog before we pivoted. And when we started the company, I, I put in something like three or $400,000 of my own money, which I'd earned from conferences. And then I'd also raised some number like $300,000 from some of the conference speakers. And yep. when we launched in our first month, we got close to a million people coming to the website because we knew that when we launched, we had to come out with a huge bang and start getting loads of traffic. And so we would write titles like, here's how we're going to blow this money just so <laughs> we could like uh, kind of punch people in the face and grab their attention. And the reality is, is that anyone who knows me closely knows that I'm like almost frugal to a fault. I'm very frugal. So the first thing that we did with that money was I paid myself $40,000 a year. John, my co-founder, paid himself $40,000 a year. We hired someone to help us with events and paid her $40,000 a year. And then we just put our heads down and we like just were grinding for like um, a few months. And then things started working out. And then when we launched The Hustle, that's like when our company changed. And I started selling advertising for it and then hired a, an ad sales team. And then ever since then, it's kind of like just grown like double digits every single month and two or three X a year. And just was like, it, it, it took like, you know, a year and a half to kind of figure out what the business was. But then once we figured it out, it was like, we just like put it on, we like, it was like putting a match on a little bit of fuel and we've hired salespeople with some of the money. Um, and, and, uh, we've hired devs and we have a team of, uh, close to 30 now. Wow. Um, and you've never taken any VC money? No VC. Well, um, we've taken about a million dollars in angel money. And so yeah. someone like me or like 20 year old me, uh, who doesn't, doesn't know a lot and lives in Missouri, that's like a ton of money. But when you think about it nowadays, like you need a million dollars just to start a restaurant. Probably you'll probably like even in a lower cost area, like Missouri or Tennessee or Texas, you would need 500,000 in San Francisco. You for sure need a million dollars just to open a coffee shop. And so we've never taken, um, BC and I say we're bootstrapped because we've only raised a million dollars. Um, but you know, it, it did. In fact, it was about a million bucks. Um, looking back, we didn't need the money, like the cash flow, because we've always been profitable. But we were able to raise money from really, really smart people like Tim Ferriss, um, the founders of NerdWallet, the founders of Bleacher Report, things like that. Um, because when we started the company, we knew nothing about media. Like I, like I still don't know anything. But uh, and so they like kind of taught us. I think NerdWallet spoke that year that I was there as well. Um, yeah, that's yeah. That company is huge. You know, they make hundreds of millions of dollars. That company, they're crazy, and they're uh, all over the all over TV now. They have commercials every other episode. I feel like I don't I don't have any insider information other than rumors, and I think I've heard they're doing like something like five hundred million in revenue this year, which is wow. massive profits. And I remember his story. I'll never forget it. He was like making spreadsheets in his dorm room or at his office about like what credit cards were more expensive than others and then helping friends find a better credit card. And, you know, seven years later, here we are, one of the largest finance, consumer finance companies in the, in the country. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And he made uh, zero revenue in the first three years. Yep. When you're first starting, like... Um, how do you think of what the hell to write every day? So I don't write on a daily basis anymore. I contribute every once in a while, but I did write a lot. And when we first launched, I would write something like any number from three to six articles a day, like as a blogger. It's way easier than you think, actually. I mean, it's hard, but once you get in the groove, you can do it uh, and be effective. How do you figure it out? Well, I think that... A little bit is just intuition. I just kind of, you just kind of know like what's interesting. But I think that if you just talk to people like an hour or two hours a day, just make phone calls and talk to sources and browse the web, you, it's pretty easy to find interesting things. Most people who aren't good writers, they're really, really slow because they're afraid. 
They're afraid of sounding silly or they're not confident in what they're saying. So it takes them forever to get anything out. But once you become good at uh, like, once you become confident in your skills, you can bang out some really high quality stuff, like in, in a really much shorter amount of time than most people real realize. And when did you kind of get the, your voice of like, I, I remember reading the, I, I went before this podcast, I read the first like 10 that you put out and they're hilarious. Kind of like all the same, right? There's no filter. I mean, uh, one article has something to fuck and blah, 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 blah. I can't even remember. And I'm <laughs> laughing my ass off and I'm going, one, <laughs> you were smart enough to, to title your first one. We just raised funding. Now watch us blow it all. Like, did somebody teach you how to growth hack through reaching people's emotions or like what put you in that mode yeah. that most people won't touch on the internet? Well, uh, I think it's two things. The first thing is that like, wh where are you from? Are you from the South? Yeah, I'm from, I'm from El Paso, Texas, but I live in Fort Worth, Texas now, DFW. Cool. So maybe you can like relate, but um, mm -hmm. the people I grew up with, it, like the Southern like kind of country folks I grew up with and I can, which I consider myself like there aren't a lot of people that have filters and you just say whatever the hell you want to say. And that doesn't mean that you're saying like mean things, but it's just like you can be that people are like relatively blunt and to the point, but still like you can still be respectful. And I think I kind of grew up talking like this saying like to my friends, like, are you an idiot? What are you doing? Like, <laughs> or like, uh, or like this thing's like amazing. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, you know, like it, it's very, so much, it's very much like a, casual but kind of like silly conversation but then i became a self-taught copywriter so in the year 2012 i learned what copywriting was and my father is an entrepreneur and he's a salesman and i realized that selling stuff is like the most important thing you could learn and i learned that at a very early age and i studied sales and salesmanship all the time and then i in 2012 learned what copywriting was and copywriting is almost like salesmanship just on paper and so i locked myself in a room and i just like obsessed over copywriting and i taught myself how to be a good copywriter i, I, went, I don't know if you could say i'm great but i'm definitely good or i'm average yeah. um and once i learned how to do that i just combined like my colloquial like irreverent voice that i grew up with with like copywriting tactics and techniques and it just kind of merged and created what it is now I think that not being from Silicon Valley, but creating like a Silicon Valley company, I definitely care a whole lot less about how I come off to others. And that kind of, that kind of has helped. Well, I was going to say in the South and I can relate to it a hundred percent. It's, it's a lot less filter down here, but you actually, you, and maybe this is my perspective. You live in a city now that probably has more filters than any city in the country. So how does that translate to the environment you live in now? Do you do people love it or are they like, God damn, Sam, you know, he, he needs to be more politically correct. We are in <laughs> San Francisco, you know. Yeah, people do say that to me and I don't care. Um, because anyone who knows me know like like I'll say I say kind of whatever I want and it it I'm not a hateful person. I, um, I'm well educated and I'm very smart, but like, I'll see something and it's like, that's fucking crazy. Like, what do you <laughs> think? What, what do these people think? And I think that more people than you think agree with that sentiment. They're just afraid to say it. And 100%. when you live in a time like we live now where a lot of people hold back, the ones who don't hold back, it just makes it way easier to get popular. So I'm thankful oh. for that. You, you nailed it. I, I think more often than not, people hear what you're saying and deep down in their hearts go, God, I wish I had the guts to, to say that too, because that's how I feel. Yeah, I think it's like way easier. Like when most things suck, uh, which I like, like on the internet, when most media companies, when we launched, I think sucked, it was like way easier to stick out just by being different. Yep. So you've grown to over a million, a million readers on the newsletter. Can you speak to that growth? Like if somebody was listening that's thinking about starting a newsletter or something, some type of content online, I know you mentioned you hired ad salespeople, um, but that was probably because you were having a lot of organic growth. Can you talk to some of like the key kind of yeah. entrepreneurial things people can do to grow an online brand? Yeah. So when I started working on this as a project in 2014, from the very beginning, it was clear that email was the most impactful marketing channel that there is i mean some 
e-commerce stores may have like the outliers, but in general, most e-commerce stores will tell you email is the most profitable channel. And I pretty much knew that from day one, just because smart people told me. And so when I started the company, HustleCon was basically an email list that would sell tickets to an event. And I created a newsletter to sell tickets to an event. And my first email, the day I started doing it, went out to 200 people. And those were just my friends, like my Gmail contacts. And then that grew to like 10,000 people. And it was mostly organic, just word of mouth, because I was writing interesting emails. But then from there, I realized that there was a handful of levers that you could pull. And I'm pretty, I'm very, I'm very analytical. And I would just say like, all right, if we get 1 million people to the website or 30,000 people to the website a day, if I can convert three to 5% of them, then I can start building up this huge email list. And so I just work backwards. I go, all right, I'm going to get traffic this way. The people are coming are going to be interested in this. Um, Okay, boom, did that. Now, in order to get to convert them, I have to do this. Uh, I got to create this pop-up. I got to A-B test it. And so I just kind of was like pretty laser focused on doing that. And so what happened is in about the first year, we were able to get to 100,000 subscribers, like 100,000 daily readers. And then somewhere around year two or like 26 months in, we were able to get a million, um, something like that. And for the first maybe four or 300,000, we didn't do any advertising at all. It was 100% organic and it was all through content marketing, basically just like blogging a ton and getting loads of traffic and converting them. And then once we realized how much a user was worth, like, so how much one email subscriber was worth, we were like, all right, we can pay uh, to advertise in other newsletters or on Facebook or uh, any other channel, as long as we can acquire a user for below X. And so once we learned how to do that, then it, was, it just, at this point, you know, we add, let's say, any number from five to 10,000 new subscribers a day. Holy shit. How do you know what a user's worth early on? Like, is there a formula or how do you know what your users are worth? Early on, before I, uh, before I like, had proof, I, I read interviews of other companies that had similar businesses or I would just like, for example, the whole reason why I started email is because I realized that Groupon was pretty much just an email list. And then I read about Thrillist.com, which this guy, Ben Lear, who's a big shot now in New York, he started uh, a daily email. And so I kind of just like called people who worked there and they just told me like bench, like, like benchmark numbers. And I was like, oh, well, let's back that out. Like, okay, so if Thrillist is getting this open rate, this churn, this CPM, I'll like decrease those numbers just so I can be like really conservative, like oh, this could be profitable if I can do this, this, and this. And so I just kind of executed that plan. And then as I got more information, I'm like, oh, wow, ours is actually better than theirs. And we could do it by turning this needle and this needle and this lever and whatever. And it just kind of went from there. Yep. God, that's awesome. Is there, is there, do you need a certain amount of users to be profitable or it just depends on what your con- what kind of content you're putting out? So when we... So when I started monetizing, I think that we are at like, let's say 40,000 subscribers mm-hmm. and our, and our monthly costs at the business was like 25 K a month. And I said, but we are making, um, we were making money through the conference. So the conference made like half a million dollars and the goal was let's start this conference and that will fund the media company. And then when the media company gets big, it's going to be way bigger than the conference. But anyway, when I started advertising on the email, our monthly expenses were some number between twenty-five and thirty thousand, maybe twenty-seven thousand dollars a month. And I said to myself, "All right, I've got two months to go out and sell the advertising, and write the emails, and write the ads in order to make us profitable." And it took me about um, thirty or forty or fifty days to do that. And so that was at forty thousand subscribers, we got to about thirty-five grand a month. Golly. So at forty at forty thousand, you were able to get to thirty five grand a month. Yeah, but it depends on your niche. Like, you could have a list of only thirty thousand thirty thousand people, and they could make way more money. I'm not lying. I met this guy this weekend. That he's a one, or he has a team of six, but he's the only writer. He has fifty five thousand subscribers who each pay him fifty dollars a month for his newsletter. 
Holy shit. Wow. That's like a $36, $40 million a year revenue business. And he told me his expenses were only half a million a year. So you're looking at 35 million in net income every year off 50,000 newsletter subscribers. Did he have some previous career where he was, you know, that deemed some financial savant and now people are just getting his financial advice or is he just a, his company is called, his report is called the van Trump report. Um, have you heard of that? Nope. His name's Kevin Van. Nobody would be reading that. Dude, dude, he's from <laughs> Kansas City, Missouri. Wow. It's it's called the Van Van Trump. His name's Kevin Van Trump, and he writes oh, about I thought it was like, the ban, the ban, the band Trump. Like get no, rid of Trump. Okay. No Van, like a German name, Kevin Van Trump. Like yep. that's his that's his real name, and so it's called the Van Trump Report. V I N or V A N Trump. Um. And he just writes about like corn futures because he's uh, he used to trade commodities. And I don't think that he was like a baller, but he was definitely good. But he, be, he was kind of an entertaining writer and he was like pretty good at talking about this stuff. And it just caught on. It's The company's only eight years old. Wow. And, and, and speak just a little bit about like how the world is shifting, that this stuff is possible. I mean, you could be in kansas city missouri or you could really be anywhere now and as long as you have content that people want to read there's a very profitable future for you ahead you know assuming that you can you know truly build valuable content are you seeing well, this shift in media yes and no no in the sense of it's not a shift it's always been here so i'm in the media world and i i can i play both sides of the fence like i hang out with like my scrappy friends who come from nothing and are able to be like kind of scam artists or do like scammy stuff online. And I also hang out with like the founders of like the biggest media companies in the world. Like these guys like Buzzfeed and all the stuff that you read on the news. And what I, what I see is that there are so many people out there that have unsexy companies that literally make a billion dollars a year in revenue through paid newsletters or B2B information media companies that these highbrow buzzfeed types they don't even like know that these lowbrow well they're not actually lowbrow but they look down on them these like lowbrow media companies like they don't even know or that they exist or even talk about them because it's really unsexy and so this whole like paid newsletter thing this has been around since the beginning of the internet right um it's just that all the attention is on the huffington post the um BuzzFeed, the Business Insider, all these companies that are in the news for either laying people off or raising huge value, raising rounds of funding at huge valuations. Um, it just so happens a lot of them are struggling, but years ago they were not struggling. But those companies are definitely like sexy. But these other media brands have been doing this for tens of years and they're just quietly killing it, but they just don't talk about it. Um, so, like, you have a company like The Motley Fool, you know, The Motley Fool? Yep. Oh, they're yeah. not, you, you could, you could, argue that they're unethical or they're very ethical. It doesn't matter, but they're a company that's like not that sexy, but I, but like, I bet you that company makes hundreds of millions of a year in net income. And so uh, maybe my question would just be then is, are you long these smaller newsletters that can pop up out of anywhere and short like these huge media companies that are, be yes. are they becoming less relevant over time? Um, the ones that are popular now, I think, are going to be less relevant because I, I feel as though they have too big of egos to try something like a paid newsletter because people, when we started the company, this one CEO, one of the biggest, the biggest digital media companies, like one of the, one of the guys, it's like a billion dollar valuation, I won't say his name. But like one of the new guys, like maybe I, who I mentioned, told me that the hustle will never be more than a $2 million a year business. <laughs> but it's like in the next less than one year, we're going to do that in revenue every single month. And wow. so I think that people like think of like a newsletter as this like silly small idea. Um, and so because of this, I think that a lot of these big companies are unwilling to take this seriously, which is great for me. Um, yeah. But, but I, I, I think that like you have another company like Agora. Do you know Agora Financial? No. Well, so I, they're 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 definitely shady because what they do is they run these ads on Breitbart.com or FoxNews.com. It says like 
Nancy Pelosi is going to come for come from your gold. Here's the best way to invest your money. And they sell an uh-huh. invest and they sell investment newsletters. They make I'm I'm not I'm going to withhold judgment on their on their tactics, but they do a billion dollars a year in revenue and they're completely bootstrapped. They're um, selling fear. They're what? They're selling fear. Yeah, so let's not judge like because some yep. it's very easy to argue that there's that, that that's re- like really unethical, but just the tactics of paid newsletters is like that's really interesting that's super interesting we just launched our company newsletter like two weeks ago and we've been working on it and again intuition i haven't done a ton of research on it but uh, truly my favorite things to read in the morning are three or four newsletters and it's where i start my day and none of it is mainstream a lot of it is the hustle is one of them um, a lot of them are just kind of these one-off guys that are really experts in what they're talking about. And that's where I consume a lot of my stuff, that and Twitter. I think Twitter... Yeah, those, those things can be really big businesses. What one-off guys do you listen to? Uh, well, one one of the guys was an old guy at um, at Motley Fool. You know who Morgan Housel is? Yeah, he's badass. He works at... Uh, uh, at Fund. Yeah, he's like... They just like tell him like just go wild. Yep. And then uh, there's a guy out of uh, Columbia, Missouri, who I actually had on the podcast a few weeks ago, Brent Bashore. He's kind of he wouldn't maybe say this, but I'll say it for him. He's kind of like an a new newer age Warren Buffett type, very conservative, very long term thinker, and just no bullshit. Um, How do you spell his last name? Uh, Bashore, B E S H O R E. He just hosted a deal, and I want to talk to you about events a little bit here in a second. But he just hosted his first annual. It's called Capital Camp, and it was oh in- yeah 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 yeah. I had friends that were going to go. Yep, and Brent Brent and I had become friends online. I I really uh, saw him through Twitter, and then just kind of kept engaging in the content he was putting out, which is some of the best. He has a company called Adventures. And he owns six or seven small businesses, similar, very decentralized setup, similar to Berkshire. Um, but they put out a lot of content and I love reading it. I, I look at the fortune, the, 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 uh, the daily CEO. I've actually gotten kind of sick and tired of um, Fortune's two newsletters. Um, again, they're just kind of becoming too mainstream and too predictable. Uh-huh. Um, I'm really looking for, for people like, that their whole life rests on putting out good content, not some big media giant where they're shuffling people in and out and there's really no loyalty to any one specific writer or theme. It's just how can we get more content out that we can, you know, get people hooked on as opposed to people that are, in my opinion, more passionate about what they're writing about. I I think like my goal is to build a really big business while also, having that attitude that you suggested. And I th- actually think it's possible to do that. You know, like if you look at a company like Barstool Sports, they've done a wonderful job of building these personalities. And the way in which they've done that is a few things. One, they've empowered their creators to do whatever the heck they want to do. Yep. Two, they've made it easy for their creators to create. So a lot of people who are wonderful creators, like this this guy, uh, Morgan, uh, who you've referred to, referred to he probably doesn't want to have to deal with this crap of like starting a business and like dealing with all the admin stuff he's just like he's like i just want to like create cool stuff and it's like so if you empower that type of person i think you could have them and be employed at a company and have this vibe that you're describing of like i feel like you actually care about me and that you're a name and but you could still be part of a brand yep and i think you're seeing a lot of businesses whether they know it or not, the, the really successful growing smaller businesses are part media company now. I mean, they're, they're putting out content, they're, they're engaging with their customer. And while they might not be calling themselves a media company, you almost have to have that mentality um, kind of moving forward to cut through a lot of the noise and really engage. Because if you're not going to do it, in my opinion, somebody else is. Yeah, and it's just fun. Oh, it's a blast. How many people um, like reach out? Do, do you get, uh, hey, would you write about this? Or do, you have a, or do people just kind of sit back and read what you put out? Or do you get a lot of back and forth with your readers? Um, like, 
we we get a lot of back and forth. So if if we have a typo, <laughs> we'll literally get ten thousand replies saying you screwed this up, um, which yep. is no big deal. I mean, it's nice that people tell us, but like you know, it's not worth uh, freaking out over. Yeah. Uh, um, I I get loads and loads and loads of spam right now. I've got um, uh, one hundred and eleven unread emails from today, and most of it is like crap of like some copy and paste PR thing yep. of someone trying to get us to write about them. Yeah, it typically doesn't work for us because um, I just don't like when people uh, send cold emails without taking the time to make them like personable. Um, so yeah, we do get a lot of that. Um, How much stuff gets written that never actually gets published that it became irrelevant too quick or some other writer that you have wrote something better i don't how do you judge kind of what goes on and how much of it ends up just being stuff that gets filed away and never published so the way that our company works is we have this new guy who's been with us for about two months his name is brad he came from NerdWallet, and brad is like the man but brad's the um the head of our content and i just have i have discussions with brad about the voice and about the um vibe that we want to create and the direction we want to go and then i'm super hands-off with how they want to operate um i kind of set the tone early on by writing the way that i wrote but yeah. now i'm really hands-off um but that said there isn't a lot of extra stuff we call that stuff sawdust so the email each day is like a house and when you're building a house you're cutting a lot of wood and you have all this sawdust left over which you don't use maybe we yeah. find use for that sawdust on social or we'll save it for a, a rainy day, but we always save the sawdust and, re and reuse it. So there's close to no waste. I love it. I'm going to pivot real quick to events. Um, it, you have, you've been very, you've profitably hosted many events and there's a lot of people that have successfully or unsuccessfully hosted many unprofitable events. Um, why are you profitable and how much of that is part of your business going forward? Um, yeah, so we make events are a very small minority of our revenue, but we make seven figures from them and it's huge margins. Um, events are tricky. They're tricky because they don't always scale well. Like if I have 10,000 people at, at an event versus 100 people, often the 100 person event will be better. So events don't scale like an internet business and that's important to keep in mind and that's why a lot of people lose money second um like i said i'm really really frugal when i started the business i was using all of my own money and so i would do stupid things or not stupid things but i would do things like i would book a venue and then i would hurry up that day to go get a sponsor who could afford who was just the same price as the venue so i would just transfer that check right on over to the venue then like instead of buying food i would call people and I would get them to bring a whole bunch of free samples, but so many free samples that it was like, that was all the snacks that we need. Um, I would return stuff to Costco that we didn't use, which looking back, I, I wouldn't have done that again. Cause that was kind of, I don't know, probably not the most ethical thing to do, but, um, that's, but that's what I did. Um, and so I also thought like, look, like what makes an event great? Is it the name tags? No. Okay, so I'm not going to spend 10 grand on name tags. And so I would just really question, like, what is actually useful and what is not useful? Like, what's useful at an event is having a beer with cool people. Um, okay, so let's have beer. Okay, does the fanciest beer make a difference or can it just be like an average beer? Probably average will get the job done. Okay, then I'll only buy that. Things like that. Yep. I just would question everything. And so... The first event that I hosted, it only took me six weeks to, from starting to actually doing it. I made maybe 60 grand and I only spent like 10 grand. The second event, we made close to a quarter of a million maybe in revenue and we'd only spent 20 grand. And so wow. you can run them quite profitably. I've also written articles about companies that make um, legitimately three or four hundred million dollars a year at 30% net income margin, net margin all through hosting trade shows. So it's possible. You just have to know where to cut corners and where not to cut corners. Um, and you have to know what business you're in. Some events, there's two types of events, networking and content. Uh, our event is 
content mostly, which is not where the money is. The big money is in networking. And if you know that that's what you're able to pull off, then that's where the big money is. Yep. Are you going to do anything like that or? Yeah, no. I love the trade show business and, and we're interested in pursuing it. Um, what you have to do is you have, a, have to have a really niche target market. So for example, like it could be as niche as anyone who buys parts for commercial airplanes. And if you host an event for that, they, I don't even know. Let's just guess. Let's say there's 10,000 people in the world who are in that in industry. Yep. 1,000 of them are going to come to that event. And if 1,000 of them come to that event, that event could legitimately make $10 million. And so that, that is like really interesting. But when most people host events, it's usually like they're a software company and they're like trying to host this like conference and they just get speakers that only they want to hear, like the people putting together the event. And then they'll like waste money on like buying gift baskets for everyone or buying the most fanciest badges. And badges can run 5 to $10 a person. Um, or they'll just spend money like crazy, or they'll do it at a hotel. And if you do it at a hotel, that means you also have to pay for their food and pay for their union. Um, and just the costs add up so fast. Yep. So do you see, like, is the event business just going to be a part of the hustle or does it eventually for you kind of spin off into its own deal? Right now, the events for us is business development and marketing done profitably, but I envision it spinning off one day soon. And I think it can make tens of millions of dollars. Yep. Are you building the hustle to sell it or are you, is this a lifelong thing that just continues to become a media empire? Um, I get asked that question a lot and I, I, and I don't have an answer. We were we yep. offered a price um, or we were offered to sell in June and I turned it down at the last minute because I thought we could get bigger. Um, so I always say like I'm a capitalist, which means I care about, like if there's a good opportunity, I owe it to everyone involved to take that opportunity. Yep. That said, more than anything, I care about adventure. I care about like feeling risk and like feeling alive. And yep. if I can feel that way doing my own thing, which 100% I can, then I'm always going to do that. Yep. But um, I, I don't, yeah, if there is a good price, I, I will 100% take it. And we've yep. had a good price and I didn't take it because I just thought we're, we're going to be way bigger. So that's kind of a, a cop out of an answer. The answer is, am I building to sell? No, I'm building uh, to build to create a very valuable company. And someone is going to want to buy it. It's just and someone already has. It's just a matter of what I take it. And I don't have that answer at the moment. I don't know. It gets emotional. Like, because yeah. this wasn't it's not like I started like a B2B SaaS thing. Like, this was just my personal blog. Yep. It is you. You, you, you and the business are, I'm not saying the business is very successful. Even if you're gone, I don't mean it in that way uh, from a, like, if you're gone for a couple of weeks, you're that synonymous with it, but your personality is baked into this company. Yeah. And that's yeah, not it, very often you see it that, that well yeah. done. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it is quite baked in. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like the company makes like a lot of money, right? Like, uh, profit. So uh, th there's no rush at the moment. What do you uh, do with all that money? Just keep reinvesting it in the business or and do you it, angel invest or do you start other businesses? Yeah. So in terms of uh, the company, we we're launching this new thing called trends and that's coming out, like I said, next week. Um, that's not earning. That's technically a losing, a losing thing right now. So our email business is still very profitable. And that, um, that funds our, our trends, our losing thing until that starts becoming a winner. Personally, um, I don't, I don't, I don't take like, like huge dividends or anything. I, um, own other companies. So I've angel invested in a couple companies and those have sold. I helped, um, start and sell the world's largest soap opera news website. It's really funny. This company is called soaphub.com. <laughs> We sold this thing for $10 million in cash. It was doing $450,000 a month in income. Um, it's crazy. It was, it was all it was was a soap opera website. Um, so I, I, had, I have little things like that on the side. Uh, I co-own a small SaaS uh, company. Um, and then I just helped a friend fund and start this thing called uh, Novelly, which is like a, a service where 
the soap hub audience, the soap opera audience, they spend $10 a month and they get new romance novels uh, each morning. Um, so I do invest in things like that. How, how, how much time, like, do people just come to you with deals and if you have time, you look at them or do you set aside time each week to vet through? I'm assuming the more popular the hustle gets, the more opportunities keep showing up at your doorstep. How do you kind of... Yeah, I, I get I get tons of deals. I pretty much don't do... I, I only do the ones that are people who are part of my tribe. Like, there's, a, there's like maybe 10 friends that I have where it's like, whether they just need a, a personal loan or they need an investment for a business, I will, one, I will just give them whatever they want no matter what because they'll do that for me and that's how we help each other. And I trust that they're going to like be uh, 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 the steward of capital and, and give me a return. And that's happened many, many times. I've got a crew of about 10 buddies who, who, is, who we're all like that, or we'll team up and invest in things together. Um, I don't really invest in too many companies that are emailed to me um, just because, you know, I'm not like so liquid that if I invest like tens of thousands of dollars, uh, like I'm still going to, it's not like I'm worth like $50 million and I can write like a hundred grand check and it's like, well, we'll see what happens. Like, we'll yep. just, we'll let it, you know what I mean? So yep. it's still like my, my capital and I'm 29. So, and I, this money's important to me. And so I don't invest in a lot of random things. That said, we, with, with the hustle, uh, do you know that, you know, SoftBank? Oh yeah. So SoftBank started as a tech publication and a conference. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Um, Wow. And I learned this many years ago and then they like saw, they, they did what we did, which was they like started getting a lot of investment opportunities and then they started investing in them and that's how they became SoftBank. And so I could see us, uh, like partnering with some VC firms and, and going in on deals together with the hustle because we have a lot of really cool insights into what's taking off and what isn't. So maybe we'll do that. But, but personally I do invest in some stuff, but, um, in general, I, I live a very, very low key frugal lifestyle. So I just kind of like save a lot of money. Dude, I love you. <laughs> like, it's just like, what do you, uh, I don't know. What do you got to like, I, you just, I, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I, I like to exercise and I like to watch TV. Like, I don't really like do a lot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. You don't have to, to be happy. Yeah. I think that, I think that, I don't know about you, but like, if you grow up kind of poor, you're like, well, this is like, this sometimes stinks, but like, I could be happy here. And then you like make money and you're like, that definitely didn't make you as happy. Like the amount of zeros added to your bank account is not like necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation to the amount of zeros added to your happiness, right? Probably a negative correlation. It's more stress. It's more, you know, things in your life, people showing up. It, it's It's hard to stay kind of in your own little world. Right. So it's like, Look, like I'm happy now. If all of this goes away, I am going to be no different. It will not matter to me at all. And so I think that like just not caring is actually really helpful. The power of having been poor or broke or whatever you want to call it at some point in your life and truly being that I think is one of the most underrated advantages that any human on this planet actually has. It, uh, it, it, it absolutely is. And I actually just tweeted about this. So um, my fiance, she's the daughter of Haitian immigrants. Her, yep. her, her mother moved here at age 18 and didn't speak English. And so I hang out with a lot of uh, immigrants in my family. And I also um, hang out with a lot of like really rich people who are immigrants. And what I've noticed is that almost across the board, and I actually just tweeted this yesterday. I was like, almost across the board the most scrappiest, hungriest, and often the happiest people I know are immigrants or children of immigrants. And I think yep. it's a combination of, of knowing what it feels like to have very little, which puts even the tiniest amount of success in perspective. Um, but it's also knowing that like, well, I don't live in a country where they're going to like bang down my door and like steal my stuff, or they're going to persecute me for some reason. Like, this is pretty good. Even if I like am a loser in America, this is awesome. Or like, so I'm happy as a loser financially or a winner financially. I'm totally happy. Yep. No, happiness is being content and it's easy to be content when you, when you, you know, you don't have a lot. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think about it all the time. Um, 
All right, we're coming down the finish line here. Uh, man, I wish we could keep riffing on this one topic because I think it it really is uh, something I think about all the time, the negative correlation of you know, just success and money and the people that are able to handle it the best usually uh, live very simple, not uh, in the limelight type of lives. And I don't know, it's just something that, you know, whether you like it or not, the more successful the hustle comes, it's going to become more of a challenge for you over time. I mean, I, well, I, I will say like this whole limelight thing, I'm not trying to like act like I'm a big shot because yep. I'm definitely not, I'm not like famous or anything, but yeah. I, I like people email me or I speak at conferences. And I will say that the tiny amount of internet fame that I have, I, I think it's horrible. Yeah, no. And I think most people would say the same thing. Very rarely have I met someone that is outrageously kind of available to the whole world and in the spotlight that could sit there and say like, this is my dream to be, to have no privacy and have everybody judging me the rest of my life. Well, it's cool at first. Cause you're like, Oh, people like validate me. And then it's like, well, I don't really want to talk to you. I just want to sit at home by myself and do nothing. So don't <laughs> like, but you have a guy, do you know who Joe Lamont is? No. So Joe Lamont, he uh, started this thing called Trilogy Software. Have you heard of that? Yep. Trilogy Software was in Austin in the 90s. It was considered one of the three best places to work behind like Microsoft and like Amazon. It was like a big, a big thing. Well, anyway, Joe Lamont was the guy who started it. And he's a billionaire. He's worth 2 or $3 billion. He's only 43, 44 years old. But he lives in Austin, Texas. And his whole thing, if you Google him, you're only going to find one or two articles with him and probably no interviews. His, his whole thing is he's, been a, he's done a wonderful job of like staying very anonymous while like building huge amounts of wealth and i think that's way more the way to go versus say like a gary vaynerchuk which if you want to be like famous do it i just think that like there's so many more downsides to like being known than being not known i agree i'm with you on that all right you said you're launching trends and i've been fortunate to have had a peek behind the curtain as a beta user but what is trends and uh especially when we were talking about investing it it is something super unique. So what, what is trends and, and why'd you do it? Yeah. So trends is basically, basically before I started the hustle, I, I, I get kind of obsessed with like researching things. And so what I would do is I would create loads and loads of spreadsheets where I'd interview lots of people or I'd comb through all types of 10 K and annual letters. And I would find like patterns and I would just like put them on a database and I would analyze them. And I was able to spot really cool opportunities and I wasn't always wanting to pounce on them or do anything with them. It's just like, you know, guys like you and me, we just like nerding out about like carnival cruise ships and like, man, if only they did, if only they did this, this or this, they could like be so much bigger. It's just like yep. fun. Right. And it's like maybe one out of 10, you're going to be like, Ooh, I'm going to like actually do that. Well, anyway, what trends is, is it's a weekly email where we dive deep on different companies and we deconstruct how they work and we dive deep on different industries and we try to spot opportunity and, and explain. So for example, this company called Hims. Hims is basically like a generic Viagra. They grew like crazy. And the reason they grew like crazy was because the Viagra patent expired and they did a really good job of, of building up backlinks. And so they rank number one when you Google generic Viagra. And so we kind of deconstructed how they did that as well as showed what other patents were about to expire. Um, another example is um, the the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We interviewed him and he said, if I had to start over again, what I would do is I'd, I would go on Yelp and find local irrigation system companies and I would try to consolidate them and like put them all together and I could build like a really big business that way. And so we like wrote about that and like said, well, here's what that would look like if you did that. Or the last thing was oh, uh, Home Depot and 1-800-Flowers.com. They both wrote in their annual reports that millennials are buying indoor plants like crazy and more specifically succulents are, is the fastest growing plant and so we wrote about the indoor plant industry and we showed how very few people are selling it online and um if you wanted to sell it online here's like some of the steps you could take and and, and so with trends it's we just show interesting opportunities and how to pounce on them yep man i love it yeah, um, you've been on it did i describe trends accurately you described it perfectly. And I think it's, it's super interesting because again, knowing the way that you're going to put it out, it's just going to be, this is what it is. We're not trying to spin it. We're just trying to show you the facts. I think the fascinating part, which y'all have already obviously figured out is how to 
kind of seek them out and find what those trends are and, um, you know, continuously put out content on where the world is headed. Are you looking? And eventually we want to have a, like a database. And I think that we could sell a database access to companies for, um, premium subscription fees. Do you think about everything as like the end game and then you just rewind and just go through the steps of like, even in this conversation, I've heard you say multiple times, you kind of see what the end looks like and you just work your way backwards. Is that how your mind has always worked? Yeah, well, it does, but I balance it really well with like, I think what get, what, get, what people get caught up with is they say like, okay, um, I want to start a company that basically, or let's say I want to start this company that's pretty much Pandora. And then you go to pandora.com and you're like, man, that site's so pretty. Like they have every artist. Like it's so, there's no way I can compete with that. And so what I know based off of talking to these people, as well as going to web archive and seeing the evolution of all these companies is that early products start out to be mostly bad early on or rough around the edges at least. And so I'm really good at saying like, here's the stake in the ground. Here's where I think we're going to be in five or 10 years. And here's how the step, here's the steps that we can go and do it. That said, I really only care about step one about digging that first hole. And I'm really confident that, that I'll figure out steps two and three along the way, or as I dig deeper, um, I'm very, very confident with that process. And so it's like a combination of being like, okay, the exact plan is this, 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 and this, but I'm really open-minded to, I'm only going to do step one. And if that shows me new information, I'm very willing to deviate from my plan. Yep. You need to write um, that said, you need to write something on that. Seriously, how you how you walk through an idea. Yeah, maybe I should. I, I, I think that like people just like don't understand that like it's it, there, there, a business is really only two things. It's an offering and it's distribution to get eyeballs to that offering. So that's the only and all, your whole goal is to get your offering profitably in the hands of customers. That's all businesses. It's, it's it's very simple. And there's so many ways to like shortcut this. Like for example, like a lot of people want to like validate their ideas and I think they should, but it's like, well, I already know people stay in hotels. Like there are, is, I, I already know demand is there. So like, that's not the problem that you have to focus on or some, do you know what I mean? Like yep. people like, I think really suck at um, like knowing what needles they have to pull um, and they overcomplicate things. It's all it is, is you have a widget that you need to get into your, the hands of your customers profitably. That's yep. all it is. And there's all these little levers that you can pull along the way. Like you can position something differently. You can get, you can get traffic from this way. Like business is very simple. I think it's just all emotional. No. And it's, it is anything that sounds too easy raises an eyebrow. And when you look at like the consulting industry or money management, or like the goal is to try and convince you that it is so difficult to run a business that you have to have a consultant and, have you ever seen a consultant that came into a business that didn't have 10 projects that they could work on? Like the problems always get bigger. The consultants get larger and it's because we live in a world where you sell fear and then you sell a correction and what really you never really needed. There was really never a problem to begin with. There's probably a learning curve, but that's just kind of how the business world is set up is let's teach you how complicated everything Let's convince you everything's complicated and then we'll charge you to make it simple. Yeah. Um, I actually just hung out with a guy yesterday, a good friend. Do you know a guy named Ramit, Ramit Sethi? Mm-mm. He's just this uh, cool blogger. He's one of my investors. And, and um, I was hanging out with him yesterday and he goes, here's the deal. Your business and my business and most every good business, you, they have to, usually what they are is they're, they're stupidly simple but you have to deeply know everything about the business and deeply execute it well. And so yep. that's kind of like what it is. It's like most, most of the best businesses, businesses in the world are incredibly simple, but they just go really deep. Yep. And they can keep, uh, they can keep peeling onion or layers of the onion back because it's simple and then that's how they keep finding new opportunities. They don't get so stuck on one opportunity that they think is so complicated they would fear ever starting a second opportunity or moving into another product line 100 100 
I'm going to be out in San Francisco in like three or four weeks. I would love to catch up or sometime in July, actually stop by your office. This yeah, that'd be great. All right, dude, this is, uh, this has been refreshing. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Bye. Yeah. Hey everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.